Hey, dear. Will you have a drink? I would like for you to make me an aviation. An aviation? Fancy. Complicated. Uh, we could do it. I'm going to do a Saranac Shirley Temple, baby. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Where is the Love? I am Michael Ware. I'm Melissa Ware. And uh, good to be with you as always, Melissa. We had such a good time talking with Tyler in last week's uh, episode. Hope you'll go back and listen to that episode if you haven't yet. It's a good one. Always love talking with Pastor Tyler Wig Stevenson. Uh, But it's uh, just us tonight. Uh, As uh, usual, there. Maybe noise throughout the podcast because there is a winter storm outside and wind at like 50 miles per hour. And our house has a lot of like uh, windows and we have like tornado like style noise in the house uh, right now. Yes. So if it sounds like Wizard of Oz up in this podcast, uh, there's a reason why. Yes. Uh, but but we'll we'll power through and. Uh, we are going to get back this episode talking through uh, our top five. Yes. I think uh, before we get to that, some good content this week um, uh, over at reclaiminghope.substack.com, which, by the way, Substack this week uh, announced a app. So you can get the app uh, and... Uh, have like a little... Uh, like a reader, uh, uh, all the Substack sort of uh, folks you follow. If you just follow us, then that's fine. We encourage, no, no, just, <laughs> but you'll have uh, all of the latest posts on the app. And uh, uh, I think that's a pretty cool, pretty cool feature. And if you uh, were following the Substack this week, I shared uh, something of an unusual, although I think we're trying to make it more usual on the Substack, which is, um, to also be sharing a bit about family and parenthood and those kinds of things. And I shared a post about um, uh, cooking for uh, your family with little time uh, while still trying to cook with love and uh, shared some tips for doing that and hope to share more uh, in in the weeks ahead. But it was so great to get reader feedback uh, on, on that. Uh, a lot of you already uh, roasting chickens is uh, a good uh, shortcut to satisfaction. And so uh, that, that's that's fun. And uh, would love for you all to send me uh, your favorite recipes for especially cooking during the work week. Um, and so was glad to do that. And then uh, posted an essay uh, later in the week about... Uh, I think a missing part of the conversation around so many of the sort of hot button issues lately, and that is that just because you can marshal the support to do something through government, and just because it passes constitutional muster, doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, the wisest 
uh, way to proceed. Uh, and uh, the essay delves into that a bit, talk about um, COVID politics, talk about a, a, a range of issues uh, and try to open up some space where we can talk about the difference between what we might personally like to see even what we consider to be sort of the ideal society, the ideal way things would function, and what you do through the coercive and public power of the government. And so um, you can read uh, you can read that uh, by going to reclaiminghope.substack.com. And then, of course, Melissa, we uh, have all the content that we usually have. Top five, uh, we have. Uh, political brief and we had faith in the news uh any anything you you want to comment on no no comments <laughs> <laughs> we can we can get right to it let's uh, let's get to it yeah where are we talking about this week we are talking about two top five articles this week and the first we wanted to discuss is from george packer in the atlantic it's called the grown-ups are losing it. And, this, and in the subtitle, we've turned schools into battlefields and our kids are the casualties. And this, I chose this article to be in the top five because, you know, we've talked about the school debate issue, especially around COVID, Democrats trying to, you know, recover some of the ground that they've lost because of these issues, the parents' rights debates. Um, and... George Packer has basically decided, I'm going to write something that cuts to the heart of what is school actually for. And then at the end of the article, he proposes a few of the areas in which we need to really focus in on to try to get back to this idea of what is what is school actually for. And schools, and he's, he takes a quote from this scholar at AEI called um, Robert Pundisi, who says that... Um, we should be in the habit of thinking about education as citizen making. So we should be making citizens um, through our public education system. And um, Packer goes on and says, school can't just be an economic sorting system. One reason we have a stake in the education of other people's children is that they will grow up to be citizens. Education is a public interest, which explains why parents shouldn't get in get to veto any book they think might upset their child, whether it's to kill a mockingbird or beloved. Public education is meant not to mirror the unexamined values of a particular family or community, but to expose children to ways that other people, some of them long dead, think. In an authoritarian or rigidly meritocratic system, schools select the elites who grow up to make the decisions. A functioning democracy needs citizens who know how to make decisions together. And so I think that that's actually like a really good summary as to... Um, what is school for and then the part that I found the most interesting in this article is um, some of the sort of areas in which we should focus on to try to I think sort of patch together the public's the problems that we have in the public education system right now and I'm, I'm just going to quote the article again before, before I get into it the goal isn't just to teach students the origins of the Civil War, but to give them the ability to read closely, think critically, evaluate sources, corroborate accounts, and back up their claims with evidence from original documents. This kind of instruction, which requires teachers to distinguish between exposure and indoctrination, isn't easy. It asks them to be more sophisticated professionals than their shabby conditions and pay. Um, parenthetical median salary, $62,000, less than accountants and transit um, police suggest we are willing to support. We have a 
desperate shortage of teachers, David Steiner of Johns Hopkins said, just as we're making teaching more difficult by politicizing education. It's easy and satisfying for adults to instruct children that America is an exceptional, exceptional experiment in freedom or a benighted system of oppressions. It's harder but infinitely more useful to free them to think about history for themselves. This part on history, I mean, we, we've been talking about what is history, how do you teach history, what's included, what's excluded for, you know, a good several years now. Um, and it's something that I've thought about a lot as well, especially the problem that um, Packer's presenting here, teachers, and the curriculum that the curricula that they're given, and the time and the resources that they're given, and the fact that if you want to sh- teach a history that's more grounded in shared experiences rather than just event to event, it takes a lot of training. It takes a lot of time and the ability to actually receive training and training is expensive and things like that. But um, it brought back this, uh, I worked on this um, shared history program about six or seven years ago that was incredible. It was about world history teaching. It was about creating a pedagogy and teacher training modules that would lead to greater critical thinking analytical skills for for students from ages seven to 10 years old. So very, very young. So we're not talking about high schoolers here. So starting off with those types of skills, which is very much a problem we have right now where kids are just sort of presented facts, you memorize them, you take a test and then you move on. You don't really have a building of critical or analytical skills until basically if you choose to go to college. Yeah, so I did think that was interesting. I I was reflecting though, Melissa, So much of what is said about sort of the state of public education, the state of like what's being taught, and even as I read people's stories of um, what they didn't learn about in high school and are just Mm -hmm. learning now, sort of those kinds of things, there's been a spate of... uh, I guess like it, it, historical books on race, gender that um, are hailed as like these eye-opening works that like why why did no one ever tell me this? Mm-hmm. And I, I've read them and found them generally to be valuable to a certain extent. Uh, I was really surprised to find entire chapters in some of these books about uh, like books I read in uh, in high school in like freshman year. <laughs> um, and we've talked about this on the, we, we didn't go to like a uh, a top level public high school. I mean. I mean, literally nowhere near it. Right. Yeah. Uh, it, um, I mean, I'm, 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 I was very grateful for my uh, public education and, and high school, but just sort of, um, you know, we we were we were not in uh, the wealthiest school districts, and we were not in a particularly like highfalutin area. I think the New York State system is is generally thought to be, um, in terms of curriculum and standards, like better than other states. But mm-hmm. but we didn't go to like an elite high school, and, and so that's striking to me. He, he that Packer, um, like it's hard for me to gauge. Ex- how pervasive uh, the kind of things Packer is talking about and that so many other people talk about on both the right and the left in our curriculums 
or or is this like fever dream stuff? Like is is Packer in a way um, uh, sort of projecting his sort of cultural preferences mm -hmm. onto public schools? So he talks about um, he talks about sort of literature and the fact that like the testing is around these isolated you know paragraphs of literature and not sort of analysis and and delving deep into books but like we were just in school 15 years ago i fell in love with so many books in high school uh, uh, like great works of literature that i felt like uh mrs graham and Satter, <laughs> you know really yeah. uh really opened up and let us explore and then yeah when like the state test time came around uh it was you know read these random three paragraphs from you know whatever and and uh you know uh it was like reading weird reading comprehension uh reading comprehension stuff that sometimes seemed really far removed from uh from from reality or or how you should read so i, I resonated with packer saying that but yeah so i i, I just um so I'm not sure how how pervasive some of this uh, stuff is. It so much of it doesn't resonate with sort of my education. And then the broader sort of point I wanted to make was, um, you know, Packer is a, such a thoroughgoing liberal, uh, and um, I think he is. Um, you know, he talks about, you know, the purpose of public education to like, you know, get uh, get uh, people out of their isolated, you know, tribes and their families and expose them to sort of democratic education so that they could learn about the broader world. And like, there's all kinds of historics, like subtext for that kind of language and what that means uh uh it uh historically that has meant things like dissuade people from their silly religious superstitions or dissuade people from dissuade students from uh the um the the habits uh, uh of their uh ethnic background. Uh, I have an article that we've talked about coming out about uh, how this was done in, in New York City public schools with Italian immigrants, that the school system was used to uh, sort of suggest that an Italian sort of uh, uh, Italian lifestyle was unhealthy and sort of uh, uh, backwards looking. Uh, and of course, that same playbook has been so so uh, uh, there, there's all these kinds of assumptions about it. What Packer doesn't seem to be doing is uh, saying public schools should not be influencing kids. And of course, uh, the idea that we, that's sort of the liberal bubble that needs to be pierced here that Packer seems to want to pierce in some ways and in other ways he doesn't. Uh, we were talking before recording, you know, Sometimes I read Packer, and especially lately, and go, you know, these are a lot of words for him just to get around to saying he's uncomfortable with the current state of racial discourse in this country and regarding education. And so it seems like we've hit a soft spot for 
Packer on the direction of the conversation, and and uh, maybe uh, maybe um, uh, you know that's legitimate, and maybe it should be a soft spot. But uh, I was reading this and and just thinking um, uh, there are deeper questions to be um, to be asked here about the purpose of education and and exactly um, how intrusive. Uh, how um, uh, how redirective uh, a public education should be, uh, and Packer in some ways asks those questions. In other ways, he seems like upset that other people are asking those questions and the answers aren't turning out to his liking. So. Um, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure. To, to me, I read this article and thought, well, yeah, this is like the liberal, this is the liberal dilemma that we're going through. And Packer is basically saying, like, just like, can we please go back to when there was like a, a consensus that like a basically progressive, liberal, but sort of not self-consciously identitarian, uh, sort of. Uh, uh, ideological hegemony like was was in place like things are too fractured now uh, for me and I I don't know if we're I don't know if we're going back <laughs> like I, I think this this is just um, th this is just uh, uh, part of um, part of the landscape now I guess the last thing I'd say which is um, and I tweeted this uh, uh, earlier this week which is uh, Liz Brunig really helped me understand uh, uh, the, the, the way in which schools often become the sort of vector uh, for these debates uh, because it's like one of the rare ways in which our like highly symbolic cultural politics can at least be given the semblance of real import. You know, it's like a, uh, uh, schools operate, and this is what Packer kind of touches on too, which is our schools are operating as a sort of uh, playground for adults' issues. And that's a real, that's a real problem. And we... Uh, but again, I don't know the way out. It's not like kids are going to be uh, deciding their own curriculum, you know, like like adults have to have to run things. Just adults have to be better, you know. For me, one of the reasons why I chose this article for top five is that Packer does delve just slightly a little bit. So something I would love much more discussion on, you know, other people writing essays, whatever, is on this issue of how versus what. So a lot of our arguments and the strife that we have around schools right now is on the what of curriculum whereas i think that where we should be focusing and where packer is focusing a bit on is the how the pedagogy how are we actually how are we actually teaching children different subject matters and the how is in giving children critical thinking skills analytical skills where no matter what kind of information that they're presented with they're able to work through that information and think for themselves and come to conclusions 
um, dive in further on something, even at a young age. I mean, there's curriculum out there where you can be teaching these types of skills even at in kindergarten, first grade, like seven-year-olds. You can build the foundations for these things. And so I would love to see a lot more discussion if we're going to try to go a bit above the culture war fray here, which I think Packer is trying to do, but the points you're bringing up is that even if he's trying to go above the fray, he's still caught up in it quite a bit, is I would love to see some thinkers out there trying to go above the fray here and start talking about the how. How can we be delivering better pedagogy to teachers and how are we supporting teachers to even have the ability to access better pedagogy because like Packer says they're paid way too little and have don't have enough time um, to be learning how to be teaching things differently especially when they have standards to meet and other things sort of um, taking away from their time yeah I mean I I, I think that's helpful I I I still I I do think um, Right, like this is liberalism. Like that, like this is uh, it's the um, it's it's the idea that we could, if we just set up like the right process, then we could avoid making sort of determinations on uh, what's actually right. <laughs> you know, like that, like that. The um, and so I'm not sure how much of this. We, we can, I'm not sure how much of this we can align. Like, so I, I, I have to think that Packer would draw some lines in, in terms of what would be appropriate in, in a curriculum. That he's not just saying like, let's, let's throw, uh, let's throw at students you know everything and as long as they have like the right analytical skills like they could wade through the muck you know like there's some boundaries and i think like what so much of the current discourse is about is like okay so if we're going to acknowledge that there are some boundaries that some material is worth discussion and some is not then who's deciding what's worth discussion and what is not um and I, I tend to be on like, um, you, you know, I, 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 I think either way you, you work that out, it's not just a process question. Uh, people are actually moving their ideological aims through some of these process questions. And it seems like a, it seems like a, it seems like a tough quandary. It's it seems like to me, Melissa, like this is um, like when you have a polarized people, uh, then these questions of sharing a common process, or in like uh, in in the field of education, like a common pedagogy, becomes more and more difficult because there's not sort of the shared. There, there's more societal societal distrust, so there's just less of a less of um, less grace, less of a less of a, a sense of solidarity, like um, and, and so fights just fights just break out. I think it's I think it's I think it's really tough. I don't think I I, I do encourage folks to read the article. I don't think Packer is 
that solved it uh, uh, here. Um, uh, uh, one one other thing he does touch on though is uh, the the tech the tech side, and, and I thought you know it was in some ways interesting. You know, I was a little surprised. It's just sort of a couple couple paragraphs. I do think it's it's a piece of all of this, and I am interested in sort of the connection between the types of habits our technology promotes, particularly for young people, and the way that intersects with um, the 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 way they receive and interact with um, with with their education, and I think that's obviously a part of this puzzle as well. For me, in a polarized age, I'm still going to go along the pedagogy route because yes, I'm not I'm not trying to be naive here, thinking that ideology is you know pedagogy is free from ideology. What I'm talking about is we have to go after the lowest hanging fruit or the lowest common denominator, the thing that will be more easily we'll be able to more easily get done, potentially get more agreement on. Obviously, like the whole the boundary thing, yes, but. I'm not talking about a technocratic solution here. I'm talking about the lowest hanging fruit solution here, um, where you can create boundaries around pedagogy. And yes, that's where the sort of fights will be. But the whole, you know, the the subject matters, the what of whatever it is, whatever the subject is, that's the stuff that is making, you know, causing people to just. Uh, you know, uh, whatever the title of this article is, just sort of lose their minds. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I just wanted to defend that approach a little bit here. Um, because where else are you going to start in a polarized society? You're just going to end up nowhere if you just keep on discussing it over and over again. No, no. I, I mean, yeah, that's why I call it a quandary, right? Like, you know, oh, like, I know that, yeah. you know, like, um, uh, it, it's because when you, uh, when you, um, uh, when, um, there, there's uh, when the common denominator keeps lowering, <laughs> um, then uh, then everything gets tougher in terms of self governance, you know, generally. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's it's in, it's an interesting entry in sort of this ongoing uh, conversation. The article is the grown ups are losing it, and uh, it's George Packer. Uh, for for the Atlantic, uh, Melissa, we had one other uh, article we wanted to discuss. Again, this will be in the top five. Um, tee, tee this up for us. This article is an interview between one of our favorite writers, Vincent Cunningham, and Cornell West, and it's in the New Yorker. Um, the title of the article is "Cornell West Sees a Spiritual Decay in the Culture." Subtitle. A conversation with a prominent philosopher about democracy, disagreement, and how to stay upright in a fallen world. And this is just a super enjoyable interview. Vin Vincent is particularly gifted at interviews like this. Um, but well, Vincent could just follow Cornell wherever he was going. Yes, which and is just so such a often. Gift. Yes, yeah, they're really good. Yes, they really. Um, 
Vincent points out something key about Cornell in that Cornell often starts with the individual if, if he have whomever it is that he's talking to. So Cornell starts off by asking about Vincent's family, and Vincent points out that Cornell does this a lot to sort of create a familiarity, a camaraderie during a conversation, which is just so true because, you know, I, I don't know, three quarters of the way through the interview, um, Cornell talks about the different debates that he's had with you know, people whom he vehemently disagrees with, but also is able to treat with an immense amount of dignity each time. Um, and I think that there's a through line there um, about um, Cornell and about this interview. So, uh, I mean, where does where does it even start? Um, because, I mean, they, they cover they cover a lot of ground in this yeah, interview. Yeah, so let me, let me jump in with what I, I thought was most interesting, which is uh, Vincent asked, asked Dr. West, uh, so... Uh, Wes is now back at Union Theological Seminary. Um, and Vincent asks Wes, does it feel different being in a specifically religious environment as opposed to Harvard, a secular space? Does that change the way you approach not only your teaching, but your public presentation? And uh, Wes uh, says, uh, um, that at Union, though it's not, the students are religiously diverse, but because it's a seminary and, and sort of these questions of vocation, these questions of meaning are more sort of at the surface. Uh, uh, that, that, that there is this sense of vocation, whereas at Harvard, Wes says, quote, you you have a site of formation of professional managers uh, that are tied to profession, but not so much vocation. They're tied to career, not as much to calling. Uh, West goes on to say, my sense of vocation and my sense of calling is the same no matter where and what I'm doing. Uh, but at Union, uh, because it's taken for granted, I'm able to be much more forthright. And he means I'm able to sort of bring all of my sort of metaphysical, religious commitments, my sense of vocation and calling directly to bear. So I thought that was, uh, I, I thought that was so interesting. Uh, it's important, like he, he doesn't say he's uh, necessarily favors one environment over the other, uh, just that there, there are different ways to operate in each, I've certainly found that uh, in my life. I, I thought it was really interesting for him to to have that insight. He he goes on the next question to mm -hmm. say something else that's super interesting. That was one of my favorite. Okay, parts. yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, yeah, dive into it. So the question is: Do seminary students, in your observation these days, feel cowed or more embattled? They're entering a world that might be less receptive to the fruits of their training and. West starts off with how he um, began teaching at Union in 1977, and he says that at the time the secular was much more elevated um, or prominent. Um, and then he says, since then, since 1977, the secular has taken a lot of has taken on a lot of wounds and bruises because of commodification. Um, and he says, so when you think of the secular, you don't think right away of scientific authority, scientific breakthroughs. When you think of the secular these days, you think of careerism, opportunism, hedonism, egoism, individualism, and the ways in which science seems to be driven by corporate greed seems to be moving towards 
the explosion of the planet or the collapse of the environment. <laughs> <laughs> so that the secular has a very different resonance now than it did in, in 77. It's almost as if everybody recognizes the spiritual decay and the moral decrepitude of the culture. Wow. So this is so interesting. Wow. Because we've been, I think we mentioned a couple episodes ago, Christopher Lash, and we've been reading yeah. a lot of Lash. <laughs> and the way he describes the secular at that time, because most of Lash's books were written in the 70s and the problems of the 70s and how they very much look like today, um, I can see West and Lash sort of, I, I don't know, vibing here together a little bit. Um, and... Well, I mean, Lash, uh, I mean, I, I perked up right when he said the um, the professional managerial oh, yeah. class, oh, which yeah. is, which is, Lash spends a lot of time on that, particularly in Revolt of the Elites, but also in Culture of Narcissism. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I think this answer was worth the price of admission uh, to, uh, to the interview. This idea that it's actually, there's such a narrative now that we have a, that we have a, um, uh, well, so I, I think there are some who still hold on to the idea, as long as they don't think about it too much, that we're sort of on a progressively secular trajectory. Um, but I agree with Wes. I think that that is actually breaking down. And what he proposes here, which is actually, um, and I want Christians to, to hear this, right? Uh, it, it, it's actually a secular, materialist worldview that is feeling pressure and that is cracking under the weight of reality of the last 30, 50 years. Um, I think so often Christians can imbibe this sort of, uh, th this, um, well, speaking of lash, the sense of uh, 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 nostalgia about the past and the sense of uh, actually taking on uh, a, a narrow and parochial view of what progress looks like so that we almost sort of call Christianity in for defeat regardless of, of the circumstances <laughs> yes. and regardless of what's happening on around us. And what's interesting, I mean, Wes is, is a is a Christian. He's a, he's a believer, but I think a lot of people would look at Wes and go, oh, he's a progressive, like a Bernie guy. What's, what's interesting here is that Wes seems much more um, uh, optimistic and has a much broader view of the play Christianity can have in this cultural moment than, than many of the most conservative Christian worldview people mm -hmm. uh, would would have. It, it, Wes is actually saying, no, it's a, like things are, are contested now and open in ways that they weren't in 1977. Uh, I, find someone on the religious right who would say that the culture is more open to Christianity now than it was before the religious right. Uh, before the rise of the Christian coalition and the moral majority, I mean, so it's it's just a it's just an incredibly provocative answer he gives here. That actually, I think if you hold it up to reality, um, uh, I think it, I think it matches. Now he goes on in the answer to say uh, 
And then the question becomes, well, what blame do we give to religious institutions for accommodating to the empire, for, for accommodating to the sort of commodification that we've seen? And certainly that's a question. So, you know, West is not saying uh, secularism has been proven to be inadequate and, uh, you know, religion, like, yeah. re like religion is like a... Um, here to win the day. No, he's saying what Charles Taylor and so many others have said, what I've written about, which is, no, this is a time when sort of uh, every worldview, every uh, sort of unified theory is uh, under attack and critiqued and being deconstructed. And so the question is, what what gets constructed in the midst of all of this dis, uh, destruction? And then he goes on the very next question of Vincent very astutely asked, connecting this with um, uh, the common refrain or rhetoric being used right now, which is believe in science. Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> I know. And I, yes, I literally bring this up right now, Michael, because you've been railing against the term believe in science for years now. Um, and Wes just kind of just ethers it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. by reminding people that science in the past has decided some some incredibly awful immoral things about certain types of people um and has said scientific conclusions when there were none there right but he has this amazing line that i will be citing uh him for uh he he, he finishes by saying um so, so his point is you know folks tied to religious traditions need to hold on to the best of the enlightenment of, of various sorts um, uh, because he says there, there's something really critical there. Uh, he says, quote, there's always a strong leaven in any enlightenment. Uh, and then he, he goes on to say, uh, as you said, he talks about all the ways science has been misused in, in ways that I think people too casually shrug off as, oh, well, that wasn't real science. You know, it's 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 so funny how the same kinds of excuses people give to excuse away uh, 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 wrongs of religion. Mm -hmm. How quickly, sci uh, you know, people who are advocates for science will take up the very same kind of justifications they disdain and that they'd shred uh, if they were made on the religious side. Uh, but but Wes closes here by saying the best of science can be Socratic which is such an interesting idea. I think what it does is it, um, it, uh, it, it um, takes science off the throne a bit. Um, it also, I think, is, is a much more hopeful and a much more accurate uh, sort of depiction of how, how science actually functions uh, in the world and what the best of science could be. Uh, so yeah, I thought it was I thought it was such a fascinating interview, and and I, I hope I hope uh, a lot of folks from all kinds of different perspectives uh, read it. He says so. He says quite a few things here I disagree with pretty robustly, but I'm always happy when I read read West, especially when he's being interviewed by by someone like Vincent. Mm -hmm. No, it was a great interview. And I also, I mean, he pushes this point home a lot in a lot of the different speeches or interviews that he does. 
but Vincent gets into, you know, support of Obama or support of Biden and um, West sort of along with a lot of like how what you've written throughout the years in terms of um, supporting where you can and disagreeing where you, you know, you don't actually support whomever it is that you're um, that you're voting for. Um, and I just think that's so important for people to hear again and again and again. Especially from someone like him, from a what he, you know, what Vincent gets into a little bit in the article as well, a public philosopher. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 good stuff. And there there was some news. Uh, uh, so, I mean, I guess on Vincent's side, it's been previously announced, but Vincent's working on a book on R and B, and then he's working on a novel about a campaign staffer who. Uh, uh, goes through a campaign and uh, goes through a presidential campaign and uh, how it leads him to reconsider and think about his religious life and perspective. Uh, and I think obviously that's going to be fascinating. Vincent was uh, such uh, uh, so kind uh, when Reclaiming Hope uh, came out and Vincent himself uh, interacted with the Obama, uh, did, did work with the Obama campaign as well. I'm really, uh, really excited to see what a novel sort of along these lines uh, looks like. And then he's writing a book on R&B, which uh, I'm really excited about too. So, so much good stuff coming out from Vincent. But then the news that I hadn't heard uh, is that uh, Dr. West has been offered, invited, and has accepted to be giving the Giffords Lectures in two years. So this year, Oliver O'Donovan gave the Giffords Lectures. They're some of the most prestigious sort of philosophical lectures. Um, and so that's something to put on the calendar. Uh, and he even says in the, in the article, you know, uh, West has never taught in a philosophy department. Uh, um, he, he's a philosopher by training, but and he goes into a bit more. I won't sort of recap all of his reasoning for that. But the Giffords lectures, he, he says, are his opportunity to sort of lay out his philosophical vision, which in some ways he hasn't hasn't done before. So it should be it should be a really interesting. Uh, uh, it should be a, something to put on the calendar. So I thought that was a, uh, again, maybe I missed him announcing it somewhere else, but I thought it was an interesting little news tidbit in this in this uh, in this interview. I think that wraps it up for today. I think that wraps it up. It's uh, it's been good to uh, to be with you. Hope you'll read the top five. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you think of these uh, two articles um, and the rest of the content that you've. Uh, received through Reclaiming Hope this past week. Again, you could subscribe at reclaiminghope.substack.com. Get this podcast, get our content in your inbox uh, uh, automatically, and uh, uh, leave a review on iTunes uh, or on a- any of the podcast providers uh, if you want to mind. Helps us helps us out and uh, 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 tell your friends about where is the love. All right, babe. It's. Uh, uh, Another one, another episode in the can. I thought you were about to say another one bites the dust. <laughs> another, I should have said another one bites the dust. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I own that song, or else, or else uh, we'd close with that. Uh, but <laughs> that, would, uh, yeah, that would actually be pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But instead, we'll close with "Where Is the Love" and Roberta we'll, Flagman. Uh, yeah, and we'll talk to you uh, next week. Bye.